Pushkin. Legacy of Speed is executive produced by Tracksmith and presented by Puma. In the 1960s, a revolution started in Speed City, a protest movement that transformed the world of sport forever. And the easiest way to describe what Speed City was fighting for is to describe what they were fighting against. What they were against was the world created by Avery Brundage, an Olympic official who wielded immense power. In the world of international sport in the post-war years, Avery Brundage was the king. Actually, dictator might be a better word. Avery Brundage amongst Olympians, particularly black Olympians, held the nickname Slavery Avery. And if your nickname is Slavery, you're probably doing something wrong with your life. I would think so, yeah. That's Dave Zirin. He's the sports editor at The Nation and writes often about the intersection of sports and politics. And he earned that reputation through his uh, contempt it was believed, of black athletes, athletes of color, uh, women athletes, and certainly Jewish athletes. Brundage didn't particularly like Jews or black people. He didn't like the idea of women participating in sports. He once said that maybe the ancient Greeks did have it right, since they only let women watch events from the sidelines. He was powerfully built, an ex-decathlete, a member of the U.S. team at the 1912 Olympics. He was arrogant, imperious, pompous, disputatious. It's almost in vogue right now to call anybody who disagrees with you from the right a fascist. We know that. Uh, But he was a fascist, as in capital F, fascist, or at least sympathetic to those ideas. Brundage made millions in the construction business in Chicago. And then, in the 1930s, devoted himself to the Olympic movement. He became head of the U.S. Olympic Committee at the very moment some Americans wanted to boycott the 1936 Games in Germany. That was, of course, Hitler's Olympics. And Avery Brundage was the person who was sent by the U.S. Olympic Committee, of which he was the head, uh, to sort of scout for himself. Like, is Nazism as bad as they say it is, was basically his mission. And he went over, he met with Hitler, he met with all the lead officials, and he came back with a glowing report. Brundage published his argument for sending the U.S. team to Berlin in a pamphlet ahead of the Games. Brundage wrote, Shall the American athlete be made a martyr to a cause not his own? He continued, To involve them in the present Jew-Nazi altercation would completely invert the object of the Games. He ended his argument this way, Certain Jews must now understand that they cannot use these Games as a weapon in their boycott against the Nazis. Throughout his entire life, Brundage had, shall we say, a soft spot for German nationalism. In the Second World War, Brundage joined the America First Party, a political movement devoted to keeping America neutral in the war against Germany. Why are we fighting the Germans? He didn't understand it. And yet, the manifestation of Nazi horrors during World War II didn't end Brundage's career. In fact, he became more powerful. In 1952, he went from being head of the U.S. Olympic Committee to being in charge of the International Olympic Committee. He served as IOC head for 30 years, longer than anyone in history. 
Avery Brundage was basically a Bond villain. Nobody defied him, except, that is, the band of revolutionaries at Speed City. From Pushkin Industries, this is Legacy of Speed. I'm Malcolm Gladwell. This podcast is the story behind one of the most famous moments of activism in sports history. I'm sure you've seen the photograph. Two American sprinters on the victory stand at the 1968 Summer Olympics in Mexico City with their fists raised in protest. Those two runners attended the same school, San Jose State. They were coached by the same man, the brilliant Bud Winter, and inspired in their protest by another San Jose alum, a former discus thrower turned sociology professor turned activist named Harry Edwards. In the late 1960s, this remarkable group challenged an orthodoxy that had governed amateur sport for as long as amateur sport had existed. They dared to ask, what obligations do athletes have to the world outside their sport? Should the fame and publicity that comes with athletic success be put to any larger purpose? The residents of Speed City found themselves stuck in a world created by people like Avery Brundage and realized they couldn't live in a world like that. By the mid-1960s, San Jose was shedding its reputation as a state college backwater. 102 All-Americans, 37 world record holders, 20 Olympians, all from one school and one coach, Bud Winter. This was Speed City, and Bud was the mayor. Bert Bonanno knew Bud Winter better than anyone outside of Bud's own family. I was the assistant track coach and freshman coach at San Jose in the late 50s. I was known as Little Bud. The athletes made that name up, but I accepted it as an honor and a privilege. After Bonanno left to coach elsewhere, he and Bud still found ways to work together and travel to track and field events, evangelizing Bud's radical new ideas. The coaches of the world loved him. He set up a cadre of coaches that he sent all over the world to teach the sport of track and field. It still was enlightening for me, no matter where we were, Coaches and athletes would come out and just swarm around him and wanted to talk to him and hear more. So if you had to be somewhere, you were always late because of Bud. And all this done on a shoestring budget. San Jose was not USC or Ohio State or Stanford. In 1961, Bud's budget for the entire year was $3,800. That was a fraction of the budgets of bigger schools. Sprinter Bob Pointer. School never had any money. Broke. And so Bud would schedule meets at uh, places like Arizona that had money. And so we traveled by carpool and spend a night in their gym and uh, sleeping bags. And then we'd run in, you know, and, and beat them, you know, because we had, uh, we had a good team. And then the next day we would come to Arizona State on the way back home and have another track meet. And that's how he traveled. There wasn't enough money to give everyone a scholarship or even give everyone the right equipment. According to the 2009 book, Something in the Air, by Richard Hoffer, Bud, at one point, had just six scholarships for 40 athletes. 
He doled them out as partial scholarships, a practice that's still common today. One athlete's tuition and books were covered, but not his room and board. Another received room and board, but not tuition. It was up to the students to make up the difference. Bud was recruiting more student-athletes in than he could parse out adequate scholarships. So some athletes didn't get shoes. That's one of Bud's distance runners, Ben Tucker. I was a national champ, and here I am working in some white folks' kitchen. Hey, what's up with this? But then I saw my other teammates doing it, too. It weren't just me. And my college roommate told me, okay, Ben, you know how the system works. Move up the food chain, you're going to get the best shoes. Lee Evans was another of Bud's sprinters at San Jose. He said his scholarship was $85 a month. His rent was $80 a month. So he and teammate Tommy Smith often had to fish for their dinner. As his athletes scraped by, Bud tried to keep them fed. He rewarded outstanding performances with a milkshake and convinced some restaurants to let his athletes eat for free. And if you broke a record, Bud's wife Helen made you a pineapple upside-down cake. This is Tommy Smith. And those cakes kept me going for a while because I used to put them in my refrigerator and if I could keep the roaches out of them, and I had cake for two weeks. She baked so many cakes for me that <laughs> she said, wait a minute, wait a minute, I'm tired of baking cake. <laughs> you, you set so many world records, she had to work real hard to keep up. Thirteen. <laughs> but she still owed me eight. <laughs> Athletes also went to Bud's house for what you might call unofficial work-study employment, yard work. Cut the lawn, uh, trim the trees, and working on the garden, and Bud would pay them for doing that. That's Bert Bonanno again, Bud's assistant coach, a.k.a. Little Bud. He had this huge cherry tree. I can remember doing this myself, going up on top of the cherry tree, and it was a little dangerous looking down. I'm picking the cherries. You'd throw the cherries down, and then we'd have a cherry meal. Everyone had to eat cherries. Here were world record holders and national champions doing yard work just to get by. After the yard work, everyone sat down in the family room at an oblong table and ate together. Often, three or four athletes would sit elbow to elbow with some of Bud's kids. Bud would hold court and tell stories. Lots of laughter and lots of leftovers to be sent home with the athletes. The athletes of Speed City represented the amateur ideal, competition for the love of competition. It wasn't like today where someone like Michael Phelps or Simone Biles can go from Olympic glory to multi-million dollar endorsement deals, or champion marathoners who can charge six-figure appearance fees for running races. If you ran at San Jose State in that era, you dug up trees in your coach's backyard, caught your own dinner, and ran for the love of running. And you know who loved this romantic image of the amateur? Competing for the sheer love of the sport? Avery Brundage. He thought that's what the Olympic movement was all about, the pure, selfless pursuit of athletic excellence. In this imperfect world, the International Olympic Committee hopes to maintain the honesty and integrity of the Olympic movement, uphold its reputation of fair play and good sportsmanship, and keep it free from hypocrisy chicanery, and greed. In Brundage's words, the athlete should compete, quote, for the love of the game itself without thought of reward or payment of any kind. He was an absolutist, 
when big-name alpine skiers in Europe enjoyed a little too much fame and moved in worlds with a little too much money. He proposed shutting down the Winter Olympics entirely. Listen. If Winter Olympic Games can be uh, held on the basis uh, which they started, which was a friendly festival of snow sport, I'd like to see them. But whether they can, in these times in which we live, in these uh, mercenary, materialistic times, I don't know. These mercenary, materialistic times. If he had a core, if he had a set of principles, it was an obsession with this idea of amateurism. This is Dave Zirin again, the sports editor for The Nation. Through most of the 20th century, the most famous runner in the world was the Englishman Roger Bannister, the man who first broke the mythical four-minute mile barrier. Avery Brundage would have said, Roger Bannister is my platonic ideal of the amateur athlete. He's the perfect example of the old paradigm. He is a medical student who runs on his lunch hour, (laughs) who has no ambitions outside of breaking, you know, of running faster and faster. He has an enormous amount of public celebrity, which he doesn't use for any purpose other than to discuss his running feats and to celebrate the kind of amateur ethos. I mean, he's this, mm-hmm. he's the perfect amateur. This, this idea of amateurism, like this idea that it's, these are people who um, already have stable lives, already have work ambitions. These people are so selfless that they're using their leisure time as a way to get us to understand or re-understand the limits of human potential. That was Brundage's dream of amateurism. Bannister is, he's at Oxford University. He's an upper middle class Brit. He is this incredibly charismatic, well-spoken, beautifully educated. That's what it is. Mm -hmm. That's the model. Now, if you were one of Bud Winter's champion sprinters, what would you make of this vision? That's next on Legacy of Speed. Recently, I sat down with Tracksmith founder and CEO Matt Taylor to learn more about the brand and why they wanted to tell the story of Speed City through this oral history. I, like you, have been a runner my entire life. I love it. I love the sport. Running is a part of who I am. Um, But I felt like there was so much more that could be done in terms of how the sport is presented and how it makes people feel. And so I started Tracksmith in 2014 to make people fall in love with running. So the, the, the project, the Bud Winter Speed City project, where did that come from? The image of Tommy Smith and John Carlos on the podium in Mexico City with their gloved fists raised in the air. It has to be one of the most recognizable photos of our generation. But a photo only captures a moment in time, right? It's like a snapshot with no commentary. And as, as powerful as an image that was as a track and field athlete and a fan of the sport, I always wanted to know more. And so as I got to learn more about that story, there were really two parts that felt extremely compelling to me. One was how did this tiny school in California produce so many world-class athletes? San Jose State was not an athletics powerhouse. 
but in the 1968 Olympics, they, they won three gold medals and a bronze, which was amazing. And then two, the legacy of Speed City, its sort of impact on the world as we see it today is not that well known, um, both in terms of athletic performance, but also social justice. More than just incredible products, Tracksmith tells stories and creates experiences that make running more rewarding. This show is just one example. Learn more at tracksmith.com slash legacyofspeed and get 15% off your first purchase. As the 1960s progressed, the contradictions between the amateur ideal of people like Avery Brundage and the realities of life for young black men in San Jose were becoming more and more obvious. Bud was recruiting black athletes from the inner city parts of the Bay Area or Los Angeles and bringing them to Lillywhite San Jose. This wasn't Roger Bannister gliding around the Oxford track before heading back for high tea at his ivy-covered college. Here's distance runner Ben Tucker again. San Jose was a cowboy town in those days. There were precious few blacks. I mean, there was like open space, orchards, canneries, Sometimes when we would be running along in the hills or on the roads, they would give us the N-word. They would throw beer cans at us. So San Jose was my first real exposure to racism. For many Black athletes, that exposure began with their first arrival at San Jose State and the search for housing. The school didn't have dorms until 1960. Even after its first residence halls opened up, many Black students lived off campus, or tried to. Sprinter Ray Norton. What they had was approved housing. But if you took the list, which I did, went around and said vacancies, they said, oh, we, oh we're full. Oh, we have a deposit. Oh, they got all kinds of excuses. Bud's athletes were the best runners in the world. But off the track they felt like second-class citizens. That was the contradiction at the heart of Speed City. And the voice of that dissatisfaction was Harry Edwards. You may have heard of Harry Edwards, writer, professor, advocate, advisor to athletes. Wherever racial justice makes headlines in the sports world, Harry Edwards is probably involved. He's the one who mentored Colin Kaepernick, the NFL player who took a knee during the national anthem in 2016. And where did Harry Edwards get his start? San Jose State. He was a discus thrower on Bud Winter's track team, six foot eight, also starting center for the school basketball team. A kid from a tough neighborhood in East St. Louis, he tried to use sports as a way to build a better life for himself. This is from an interview Harry Edwards did with the San Francisco Chronicle in 2021. My uh, father was uh, a formerly incarcerated individual, did 10 years in Joliet State Prison, uh, had an eighth grade education, and literally went into bad health trying to prove that a black man in a racist society who is a formerly incarcerated individual could support a wife and eight children on $65 a week and not go back to prison. Harry was a very special guy. That's Edwards' track teammate, Ben Tucker, again. Tucker grew up in a working-class housing project near the San Francisco shipyards, where his father worked. Harry Edwards came from somewhere very different. We'd talk about our neighborhoods, and then Harry would talk about East St. Louis. And the room would go silent, 
he talked about how he had to work on the garbage truck, help his father, and how they'd go in the little alleys to get the garbage and dump the garbage and how many bodies they would find on the weekends, on a Monday. And it was clear he did not want to go back to East St. Louis. It was a one-way ticket. Ben Tucker says that Edwards didn't party with the team very often. He spent most of his time in the library. While other athletes were steered towards physical education majors, Edwards pursued a degree in sociology. He also looked at the athletic department with a critical eye. He couldn't comprehend why he and so many other student-athletes were living on the edge of poverty. And he didn't accept Bud Winter's practice of handing out scholarship money and perks based on merit. Tucker remembers a disagreement in Bud's office over the kind of shoes Edwards had been issued. Bud had given him something. It weren't discus shoes. And Harry was said, ah, Bud, you know. And Bud told Harry, you're being obstinate, Harry. Just take these shoes. We don't have the budget right now. In his sophomore year, Edwards was the co-captain of the track team when a blow-up occurred with Bud. According to the book, Something in the Air, Edwards was outraged that eight sprinters were sharing two scholarships with little money for equipment, much less food and housing. Edwards confronted Bud in his office in a heated argument. Shortly after that, Edwards left the track team and focused on basketball and schoolwork. Edwards graduated from San Jose State and earned a fellowship to Cornell University to complete a master's degree. He then returned to San Jose State in 1966 to teach sociology part-time. And now his critique had broadened. Here's Edwards again in the San Francisco Chronicle interview. Our leaders were being shot down in broad open daylight. Mega Evers uh, had been shot down in 1963. Uh, churches were being bombed. Four little girls had been killed. Three civil rights workers uh, were uh, murdered. To Edwards, sport is not a gilded cage. Sports and competition reflect all of the problems and challenges of the society that they're a part of. We're still having the conversation that Harry Edwards started back in the 1960s. A half century ago, Edwards started writing about the exploitation of college athletes and the grim financial future they face. And colleges are just now moving the needle on how to compensate athletes with something other than scholarship money. Can you imagine how Avery Brundage would have reacted to that? The idea that a college football offensive lineman, an amateur, would play for anything more than the blinkered pursuit of athletic excellence? The problem with Brundage's vision to Edwards wasn't just this romantic notion that an athlete should be above mercenary, materialistic motives. It was that Brundage believed that amateurism also necessarily implied that the athlete must be above politics. Why did Brundage think that it was okay for the U.S. to send a team to Hitler's 1936 Olympics? Partly because he didn't have that much of a problem with Hitler but also because he didn't think that the true amateur athlete should have any concern for politics at all. Brundage would use this same argument repeatedly in his tenure as head of the International Olympic Committee. When white supremacist governments ran Rhodesia and South Africa, both excluded black people from their Olympic teams. Did that mean they should be barred from the games? Brundage didn't think so. We don't play politics. And should an amateur athlete speak up about that question? Heaven forbid. 
To this day, Rule 50 of the Olympic Charter states, no kind of demonstration or political, religious, or racial propaganda is permitted in any Olympic sites, venues, or other areas. The Olympian, by virtue of being an Olympian, gives up his or her right to political speech. Harry Edwards looked around America in the 1960s when racial protest was setting the country on fire and said, why would we agree to that? He saw Muhammad Ali stripped of his heavyweight boxing title and sent to prison for refusing to fight in Vietnam. He saw a group of pro football players refuse to play a game in Louisiana after one of their black teammates was refused service at a restaurant. And he saw the black comedian Dick Gregory, the Dave Chappelle of his day, try to get black athletes to boycott the Olympics in 1960 and 1964 until some measure of racial justice was done at home. Here is Gregory talking about it many decades later for the University of Virginia's Exploration in Black Leadership Project. The AAU is having the Olympic tryouts in 1960. And I go there with a picket sign asking the Negro athletes, please boycott the Olympics. But no Negro even looked in my eye or said anything. Man, you can't believe how rejected I was. Gregory's efforts went mostly unnoticed. But Harry Edwards was listening. I think that sports on an international level is probably the most high-profile political stage. At the time, Edwards was writing a dissertation entitled The Sociology of Sport. And in it, he created a counter-argument to the Avery Brundage vision. Sport was much more than just a game. Sport was part of society and therefore subject to all the same expectations for fairness, equality, and accountability. And athletes should not silence their voice in the name of protecting the purity of sport. They should use the platform they have been given by their achievements to address society's biggest problems. Athletes realize that uh, a sports stage can be transformed into a platform to make statements that people uh, cannot help but hear. To make the change he envisioned for sports, but also for something much bigger. Edwards needed athletes. Athletes with the courage and opportunity to speak up. He found them easily. Why? Because they were his neighbors in Speed City. On the next episode, we'll meet three stars of the Speed City era. Bud Winter made them world-class sprinters. Harry Edwards inspired them to make protests in front of the whole world. Legacy of Speed is hosted by me, Malcolm Gladwell. It's executive produced by Tracksmith and presented by Puma. Our producers are Joel Meyer and Emily Rostek. The show is edited by Trisha Bobita and Karen Shakurji. And our mix engineer is Jake Gorski. Original music composed by Alexis Quadrado with trumpet by Lee Hogans. Fact-checking by Winton St. Clair. Our Pushkin EPs are Catherine Giraudot and Mia Lobel. Our development team is Lital Molod and Justine Lang. We had help with research and archival material from Yurla Hill, Kathy Winter, Tom Ratcliffe, John Stalkup, and Carly Lowe. Special thanks to Bud Winter Enterprises. Legacy of Speed is a production of Pushkin Industries. 
To find more Pushkin podcasts, listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts.